Okay, we invite you to come back together and sit down, please. Um, we, uh, we made these available about four weeks ago, and they were taken immediately, all 60 of them, so we have 30 more. There are Easter devotional guides, and it was uh, 60 days worth, but it take, it's called The Heart of Jesus by one of my favorite uh, Christian teachers, Dr. David Jeremiah. And uh, we've ordered 30 more, they're, they're available there. My suggestion is you start about 14 days before the last one because it's two weeks till Easter. 14 days before the last one, if I'm doing my math right, is about 46, okay? So you simply go to number 46, not page 46, but number 46, and you start from there. I've been greatly encouraged by it and uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Now, um, Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill is the person that we always talk about in my home. Uncle Bill uh, was, uh, he was just a crusty old man. Um, and he only got worse as he grew older. We knew that he had a big heart, but he just never knew quite how to let it out. So Uncle Bill uh, followed my dad from New Hampshire to, uh, to move to Southern California. And he brought his family with him. For us, moving to Southern California was financial salvation. Uh, my dad was able to finally have one job and make a living on it. Uh, for Uncle Bill, he considered it cruel and unusual punishment. And it is outlawed in the Constitution. Uncle Bill was in Pasadena with us, the L.A. Basin, and all he could talk about is he could no longer, in Los Angeles, hunt and fish and trap. <laughs> well, uh, being a person who grew up mainly in Pasadena, I really had no desire to be doing what Uncle Bill was doing or wanted to do. And, and so he talked about that and talked about that and how much he missed it. Until he finally took the family up and moved them back to New Hampshire, where apparently it didn't do him any good. Uh, Uncle Bill was never really, really happy. Uncle Bill was a whiner. Uncle Bill never knew how to really show love or give a compliment. I don't remember him ever saying thank you. Uncle Bill was a grouchy old man in his 30s. So the last time I saw Uncle Bill... Uh, Barb and I were visiting there for our 30th wedding anniversary, and uh, we went to the family home, and uh, he sat there through dinner, not giving many compliments as usual, uh, and at the end, he says, I have something to show you, Jim and Barb, so he takes us out to the barn on this farm, he uh, opens a freezer in the barn, he pulls out a freezer bag and pulls something from the freezer bag and puts it in my hand. And I go, oh, thank you, Uncle Bill. And I put it back in. My wife, Barb, was right there with me. And she couldn't figure out what it was. It was a good thing. Because afterwards, when we were driving away, Barb asked, what was that that he put in your hand? I went, it was a fox pelt. <gasps> that Uncle Bill caught, trapped, skinned. And now he's sort of keeping it in the freezer. Barb's skin crawled the rest of the day. 
She was not one who is looking forward to holding dead fur pelts. And I must admit, I was shaking a little bit, but that was Uncle Bill. Now, I want to say this. The chances are that there are people in your family, whenever you mention the name, because of common held memories of this person, you all have the same impression. You all tell the same stories because these are the characters of your lives. Now, I also want to say this because the person I was sharing with mentioned it. Uh, one of these days, people are going to tell stories about you. It'll be your children or your grandchildren. And they will be bringing up these, oh, you remember Grandpa Jim? You remember the time that he, yes, and I uh, hopefully will try to forget that. Let me take you back 2,000 years because there's a family member in the Joseph and Sons Carpentry Union that they're telling stories about. You see, about 2,000 years ago in the town of Nazareth, a family was having trouble with the activities of one of its members, one of its family members. The family of Joseph and Mary were having trouble with their eldest child named Jesus of Nazareth. You see, it appears that Jesus has gone overboard with this ministry thing in his life, and he's so successful that it's un-Nazarethy. <laughs> Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, said Nathaniel later in, in the Gospel of John. And so they are concluding, Jesus has just, uh, he's, he's lost it. He's gone overboard. So we are looking at the Gospel of Mark, and we're tracing through not just what it means for Jesus to claim from the very first um, uh, sentence about him in the Gospel of Mark that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are also not just looking at the Son of God, but people's responses to him. And we get today to his own family as well as others. By understanding who Jesus is, not just as an historical figure, but who this gospel makes him out to be. We gain a better understanding of this Jesus. Hopefully, we also gain a greater love for this Jesus. And our desires become better imitators and followers of Jesus. It begins this way. In chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. Here are the stories that are being told about him. Here are how these stories are, are forming. I'm beginning uh, in verse 20 of chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. Then Jesus entered a house. And again a crowd gathered so that his, uh, he and his disciples were not able to eat. Now notice this response from the family. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, verse 22... Uh, who came down from Jerusalem said this about him. He is possessed by Beelzebub, the devil. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Well, these are the conclusions that people are making about Jesus. And it begins with the accusation of the religious, not just his, uh, not just his family. And these experts, these scholars have come to this conclusion that Jesus is a fraud or worse yet, if he's not a fraud, that he is controlled by demons. So we read those passages, and I, I want you to at least have some sympathy this morning for the religious leaders that Jesus confronts. Not because you say they're right, but because you understand that they have spent their lives trying to do good theology. 
They're trying to do good theology, and, and they realize, or perhaps they realize far too late, that they are actually not trapped in their theology, but they're trapped in their anthropology. They're trapped in their humanity. They cannot step out of it. What do I mean by this? I mean that we have a human problem, and, and we have to understand that we would like to believe that we are first and primarily rational human beings. We use logic. We use our heads. But the reality is we usually lead with our emotions. Things like fear, anger, sadness, joy. These are the things that actually move us into action. We often start with an immediate emotional response to the situations around us. And maybe, maybe, Logic and reason can follow, but maybe not. Let me give an example. When someone's attacking me or belittling me or usurping my well-earned status, which I'm still hoping to get one of these days, I know how to strike back and I know how to win. And I plan on winning. I know how to uh, put together the perfect phrase that will cut this person to ribbons. Well, that's an emotional response in which I turn, uh, tune in my mind and begin to use it so I can get even. I think that's called revenge. I learned then to ask the right questions, become a better listener like every good counselor is supposed to be. <clears throat> I, en I engage my head. And so the teachers of the law here think that they are engaging their head, that they look at Jesus who's an outsider and they hear him speak about things and become even far more prominent than they are, the good, the good people, the theologians of the day. And, and they realize that their argument was disengaged from their head. It was really an emotional argument. They were making it with their hearts. They were looking for any method they can to discredit him. In fact, they just don't want to discredit him. In just a few chapters, we'll see they'd rather kill him. So they claim that the power that Jesus has comes from Satan. He is casting out demons, Satan's demons, because he has been given Satan's power. Now, when you think of that, at first you go, okay, there's, there's, a, there's an approach I hadn't thought of. But you have to realize that humanity often thinks with the heart first and maybe the head will follow. Let, let me give two ways or, or some things that I continually hear uh, as people respond to this person, Jesus, the Son of God, as Mark 1, 1 describes him. Uh, they, they, um, they, they can fail to believe in the deity of Jesus. I do not believe that Jesus was God. Why? Well, I don't want to. That's really where we'll start. I don't really want to. They're thinking with their hearts. Or they can fail to follow Jesus because they don't want to pay the cost. It's the want to in them, not the I'm thinking about it. It's the want to. We work with our want to's. That is called our will. Uh, it is how we make decisions. And so uh, humanity, as, as Jesus is, is put before them, as Jesus of Nazareth uh, the Christ, the Son of God, as, that is, as he is, and that claim is put before them, they have to sort of say, well, maybe he is or maybe it isn't, but they're going to have to do something about it eventually. Humanity usually thinks 
with the heart. At least that's where it begins. And so you will hear these head thoughts like, well, you know, it has not been proven that Jesus is actually God. Well, if you don't believe there is a God, no, it won't be proven. Science does not allow for the supernatural. Well, yeah, that's science. Science is limited. It can't deal with the supernatural. How can one God be three? But the real issue is I do not want to believe. Friends, some of us here even this morning are holding back. And it's not an intellectual assent, but it's a giving of ourselves to this person, Jesus, the Son of God. So that is what what people are like, and we call it anthropology. And Jesus approaches these experts, and he refutes them on the logic level, not on the want-to level. Uh, Let me read the next few verses. Because as Jesus speaks to them, uh, he says in verse 23, So he called them and spoke to them in, um, in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. And then he goes on to something I'll explain in just a bit. What he's saying is, if you're in a battle, you don't kill your soldiers so you can win the battle. If you're in a battle, you want to eliminate the enemy. How would you ever think that I would eliminate Satan uh, by eliminating you know, his, his minions? How can you say that I am being uh, empowered by Satan if what I'm trying to do is put him under wraps? I am defeating Satan, therefore how do you think I am in league with Satan? And then Jesus speaks these words. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. I think Jesus is speaking about that situation right there. That here is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is trying to speak to the hearts of these uh, people who are, uh, in, you might say, in a mental and emotional combat with Jesus. And they refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit. They refuse to listen to the Spirit telling him, this is who you've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. They don't want to believe. And they are blaspheming the work of the Spirit in their lives. Well, so after he tells them that, uh, you understand that they get even more angry. They work even in a more determined way to discredit Jesus, and they start this plot to kill him. Now, there's three things uh, in what we call Christology, the study of who Jesus is, that you need to know from this passage. Uh, The first thing is that Jesus uh, is really, really, really smart. I hope you've come to that conclusion. Jesus is smart, and and, uh, I also want to say this. He may even be smarter than you. In fact, if you go into a closet to pray, like Jesus says, go and pray alone, in that closet, we are assured of Jesus' presence. But also, as we go to a pray alone in that closet, I want you to know you're not the smartest person in that closet. 
If Jesus is truly there, he is much, much more intelligent than you are. But it's not just a factual intelligence. As we were looking at Psalm 136 the last two weeks, uh, we came to all sort of this conclusion that God knows us. Part of his great knowledge is he knows us inside and outside. We cannot hide the core of our being from him. He understands our motives. And, and Jesus, as we're with him, will be exposing our motives to us. You can agree or deny that he has great knowledge of you. But I want you to know that he does know you through and through. And here's the third thing. He's very smart. He knows you. And he still loves you, baby. He still loves you. Though he is totally informed about you in ways that would turn off any other person, this God is still mad about you. Not mad at you, mad about you. And he loves you dearly. So let's leave now these experts in the law, these, these uh, well-trained theologians, and go back to Nazareth and Jesus' family. It says in verse 21 again, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. It literally means to arrest him. For they said he is out of his mind. Here the family comes in. They hear how busy Jesus is, that he doesn't even take time to eat. And, and they understand that he's surrounded by his disciples. And, and he's just not taking care of himself. By not taking care of himself, they think he's lost it. And for anybody who's lost it, for, for those of us who've dealt with cults and things like that, we realize the best uh, remedy is an intervention. His family is coming to intervene in his life, to take him back to Nazareth, and to deprogram him. I think you'd say if you were to diagnose Jesus right now, at this moment when his family is about ready to take charge of him, I, I, I guess the psychological diagnosis would be that Jesus has a Messiah complex. Because Jesus is the Messiah. It's not a complex. It's his identity. In my home growing up, uh, we had a certain phrase when one of us got uppity, and for some reason it was used on me more than any one of my siblings. They used to use this phrase, who died and made you king, Jim? And it, it was just repeated a lot. I get to choose what station, oh, I, some of you probably never remember this, but there used to be a time there was only one television in a home. <laughs> and in that time, you had to get up and turn a dial to turn the station, and it was black and white, okay. So when I would get up and say, I want to watch this, who died and made you king? When I would say, I don't want Spanish rice for dinner, who died and made you king? Well, I would hear this a lot. Imagine someone looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, who died and made you king? His answer would be a little different, don't you think? I think his answer would be me. Soon, not yet, but I'm dying soon. And God the Father has made me king. And you cannot take that away. It is strange, but in my experience, we had my 
older brother, my older sister, myself, and my younger sister, you know, one at a time, put their trust in Jesus Christ. And of course, the first ones are the hardest ones. My mom and my dad really struggled with my older brother and my older sister uh, <clears throat> because they were spending a lot less time at home and a lot more time in church activities. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, more than that, my older brother and my older sister were talking not about being good people, but having a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Um, you got to understand, my parents were good people. They had good morals. They did good deeds. They ran a good home. They paid all their bills. Um, my dad was like a self-made middle-class person, and he did not want to hear that he still was not a Christian. My mom eventually got it. And when my mom got it, there wasn't much to change in her life. Her morals didn't change, but her faith changes. And this is what's happening in this sort of situation where she realizes, well, I had gone to church, my mother, uh, you know, and, and I was a good person, but I, I didn't think much about a re personal relationship with God. I thought that was just, you know, that was all handled in my being a good person. But... <clears throat> Now at this moment, we realize that 10 verses later in verse 31, it says Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Now this may have been that perfect time in which they said, we're going to go take charge of him, and this is the time they show up to do it. We do not know that. We don't know that for sure, but they're asking for an appointment. And, uh, and Jesus uses that, and he's looking at his family who was outside, and he realizes that here inside the house, he is teaching a group of disciples uh, about the kingdom of God. And he, his family doesn't want to hear him be the teacher. So here are people who are open to his teaching about the kingdom of God. So his family is accusing of, of him of insanity. The religious experts are accusing him of demon possession. But the crowd is loving him. And they want more of, of his teaching, of his leadership, of the miracles that he is performing. They're asking for more and more. And Jesus now makes a statement that stops us in our tracks. What he is saying is, yes, there is and there will always be earthly families. But God has a family. And God has a family of people who do not necessarily share the same DNA or the same, live under the same roof or, or, or have the same family name. God's family is made up of people who have placed their trust in Jesus. Simple as that. People who have placed their trust in Jesus are a part of God's family. Jesus, as God's son, Jesus as God's Savior, the way to find forgiveness for our sins, those people who place their trust in him and begin to follow him as most do, uh, those people are considered family of God. And his disciples would be considered now Jesus' family because most had by this time had put their trust in him. They haven't yet seen the forgiveness of their sins, but they were following him while his own family members, his brothers and sisters and mother, they were doubting him. So those inside are eager to listen and to follow. His family who is outside 
is eager to take him away and deprogram him. And now he makes this statement. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, those who were asking for more teaching. And he said, here are my mothers and brothers. And then he said, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus defines at this point a new family. One, a family of those who share the same faith, the same desires. And so I have discovered that over the decades in my following of Jesus of Nazareth and discovering him to be the Savior, the Son of God, uh, the one who grants to me eternal life, in, in following him and placing my trust in him, I'm finding that Yes, I have brothers and sisters and Uncle Bills and, and aunts and uncles, and I have extended family in many places. But I have come to grow at least as close and usually closer to the family of God, individuals in the family of God, because they have helped me learn to do God's will as I watch them. I learn from them, and when possible, I partner with them. I've rarely planned that these new family members will enter into my life. But when it happens, I realize the contribution they are making in my life helps me become a better follower of Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he, God, predestined us to be adopted. He uses the word adopted. In other words, brought from outside, inside to God's family. Adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure, his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul is saying these people who are in God's family were really brought from outside his family inside and now they are considered adopted children. I've been adopted uh, through my placing my trust in Jesus and it's the same with you. That does not mean you turn your back on, the, on your families but it means that you have this new family that is eager to grow in the Lord. So what's the anthropology here? Well, first of all, that family means, that, that new family, that means that I can look at you and say, hi, sister, or hi, brother. And you can look at me and say, hi, oh, great one. <laughs> or not, or not. Or you can, you know, but we don't use the term brother and sister. It's just archaic. But we can look at each other and realize here are people who share the same fatherhood of God, uh, the saviorship of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a lot in common, just not physically. So there's some anthropology here. Our anthropology tells us that you know, in the family of God, we are not members of the same nuclear family. It is not like, uh, you know, the earthly family that, that God has established. It is not like we have common earthly mothers, fathers, and siblings. But the Christology is this. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we now share in this spiritual family formed by God the Father. And God the Father is smiling on his children. And that takes us to one third thing. As we're dealing with anthropology and Christology and understanding where Jesus and humanity interface in the Gospel of Mark, it also takes us to the new family which we call 
this is four or five syllables, ecclesiology. It literally means those who are called out of the world, but also called into the family of God. It is the church. The church is the family of God. Not because you attend church, but you're part of the church through your faith in Christ. And in his church, God brings for his honor and for our benefit many such people who bring us along in the faith. It's a family thing, not a leadership thing. It's a family thing. We're here, and one of the things we're doing this morning is we're honoring one of the um, families that has meant a lot to Bergen Park Church, but more than that, has meant a lot to many, many others around the world. Some of you may not have been around long enough to know Fred and Carlene Dewey and their son Scott, who was here with them. Let me just tell you a couple things about how I've gained from their family, you know, their brother and sisterhood. In about 1984 or 1985, uh, with some of their children, uh, Fred is teaching uh, chemistry in, in the Philippines. And uh, they go and they visit missionaries. And among, you know, as they're visiting missionaries, they're struck by the poverty that they see around them in the Philippines. So they eventually do something about it. Now, I think if I was to count up the number of children that Fred and Carlene raised, I think six are their own, four are adopted, which are, they consider their own. And when it gets to foster children, I don't know if I can keep up. They have a heart for children. As they see the poverty in the Philippines, they realize that here are children who are loved by their parents, but their parents can't afford an education for them. So they start a series of what we might call preschools for these children. And that's a ministry in which they are reaching out to the needs of that community. Um, A few years later, 1991, and you can read the story of this fabulous train trip in the book that's available to you uh, as you exit. Uh, Fred and Carlene are taking this train trip into Romania, and it is soon after the Iron Curtain has fallen, um, Ceausescu has been executed, and the country's a mess. And what they discover as Westerners come in is that hundreds of thousands of children have not... They don't have the luxury of the poverty of the Filipino children. The Filipino children are raised by their parents. In Romania, they are abandoned by their parents and put into state institutions. They weren't officially called orphanages because they wouldn't be allowed to do that. They called them schools or special schools. It's a mess. It's a mess. And as they go in there, they find that all the needs are extremely different. But from about 1991 until this trip that they're about to take right now, they have been pouring themselves and teams that come from the Denver area into helping these children who are now in their early 20s. I've had the privilege of going, I think, about seven times to help them with this. I am totally unarmed. I don't know how to do it except to be there. Fred and Carlene and their son Scott, they're, you know, they come and they sit in their laps, they play games, they, they do all these things to build trust with them. 
I think I've learned more about mercy for the extremely needy just by going and watching them and how they deal with these children. Diane Pulvermiller in our church now continues the ministry uh, of Mercy Ministries. But Fred and Carlene are about to go on this trip, which may be their last. Who knows? And uh, I just want to end this time this morning by honoring them in this family of God. And uh, those who have been involved in the ministry, those in the missions, we're simply going to honor Brother and Sister Dewey, or Brothers and Sister Dewey. Why don't you stand if you can? And we're going to pray for them as they go on their trip. Here are people who are truly in the family of God that have meant so much because they are doing his will. Here is my family, those who do my will. Father, right now, we pray for Fred and Carlene, their son Scott, who will accompany them. It is our privilege and uh, to our benefit that they have been a part of us these years. We want to pray for their trip. First of all, that they can make it. (laughs) Secondly, that they can endure it. Thirdly, that they would see some of the great things that have occurred in these abandoned children. They're still hurting in many ways. And yet, they have survived, they have endured, they are growing, they are in adulthood, they are not making the best of decisions. But I know when soon, as soon as you mention Fred and Carlene, there's a smile, there is this history behind them where they understand these people showed us the love that our parents did not. Lord, honor this trip, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said.